your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron. Left Off is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and my co-pilot on this crazy ride, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? Good. Uh, welcome back. You were on a trip. You're home. I, I was. Back. I was, but the the listeners didn't know any better, right? I mean, we we kept we kept it all rolling while I was gone. That's right. I Wishing think. each other happy new year at the end of December. It's always yeah. fun. We did our space. We did our space uh, stories of 2016 a fortnight ago, and that we made that up because we recorded that early. I was I was I was hanging out uh, on the on a beach somewhere when that got posted. That's fine. It's cool. I'm happy to. I'll just keep just keep trucking away here. Yeah, no, that's no right. beach here. No beach. That's here. right. We do have a river. There's a little sand, I guess. The bottom right. of the river. It's kind of right. like a beach. So uh, funny episode this week. We're gonna we're just gonna. It's a grab bag. It's basically like an entire episode of pre-flight checklist. But we we we're going to break it up a little further just so that we can. But it's a grab bag. Big grab bag this time. I think that's fair. You want to take us to Venus first? Yeah, uh, Venus. So there's some news that we're going to get into later about how um, Venus exploration is not something NASA seems to want to do, <laughs> to put it mildly. But you know what, Venus? Stiff upper lip. Venus is still smiling. Uh, I, we'll put a link in the show notes to a story from uh, the New York Times on January 16th about a wacky thing in Venus's atmosphere. So um, there's this feature that looks like a wave that moves across Venus's atmosphere that has been spotted. Um, it was spotted when the Akatsuki spacecraft, which we talked about, that sort of had a long journey to Venus, got there. Um, it is this um, this huge thing that's sort of shaped like a sideways smile that was fixed above the ground. It was there for four days. When they looked again, it had faded away. Uh, brief glimmers appear here and there, but it basically faded away. And they're trying to figure out what this feature is. And they think... It's what's called, this is a paper that was published this week, uh, a gravity wave, which basically um, the arc appears above the highlands, uh, Aphrodite Terra, which are the highlands of Venus. And and uh, it goes up to like three miles above like sort of what they consider surface level. And, um, and it seems to be disturbing the atmosphere, uh, or, or at least at times disturbs the atmosphere. And it's just kind of cool that we, you know, you look at Venus and you think... Uh, you think that it's uh, just a you know a cloudy ball of nothing of interest, but it actually has interesting features even in its clouds. So it's it's I love when there's mysterious things that people are we don't quite know what this thing is that we saw and we have to figure it out because again that's how science happens. Um, my other uh, Venus anecdote, by the way, is that when we were so New Year's Eve, we're in Hawaii. And uh, we're at Poipu Beach, and we were treated to quite a, a little astronomical sight because we had, uh, at, right after sunset, you could really see the plane of the ecliptic in action because it was right after sunset, and there was a very, very, very thinnest of crescent moons. And right above it was, uh, was Venus, and right above it was Mars. Or maybe it was Jupiter. I don't know. It was, so we had multiple planets and um and the sun and the moon all and you could see the you could see the line of the ecliptic of the plane of the, the of the solar system straight through it but it was a spectacular venus and in fact venus was so bright 
because, you know, Venus is the brightest thing in the sky other than the sun and the moon. Um, and because it was such a sliver of a crescent moon, uh, Venus was like way brighter than, than hmm. the moon was, which was also pretty cool. So, hey, what I'm saying is, Venus, we appreciate you uh, and your mysterious atmosphere smile, even if NASA doesn't. That's cool. The thing that really stood out to me is just how fast this thing was noticed and then gone. Like, you know, we think about things in the solar system being on a really long time frame. Right. But this seems to be something that happens relatively quickly. That's always the challenge when you're measuring things occasionally. I mean, I feel like this about uh, this comes up a lot about uh, Uranus and, and Neptune, where we had one flyby. And it's like we assume lots of things about them from the flyby, but our shots from Earth or, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope or whatever are not as good, right, as those flybys were. So we're making some assumptions about what they looked like then that may not be true all the time. And Pluto is another good example where, you know, our conception of Pluto is going to be fixed by the New Horizons images that we got. But, you know, and, and on a most human timescales, they are what they are, but it doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of cycle happening in these worlds that we observe occasionally that we don't get to see because we're not there, you know, looking at it all the time. So this is right. an example with Venus where, you know, we we look at Venus, right? But Akatsuki saw something that is very different from what we've seen before. And so like, yeah, even, even now, if you're not paying attention all the time, you may miss interesting transitory things that tell us something about how that how that, uh, that planet works. So up next, we have a story from uh, Calvin College. The uh, a professor named Larry Molnar over there said that, uh, or issued a statement that they're going to be two stars colliding in 2022, and that the explosion, the, the red nova that will be the result of this collision, will be so bright that it will be visible to the naked eye here on Earth. And... Uh, What's unique about this is that if it takes place, it'll be the first time such an event has been predicted ahead of time. Uh, so the, this uh, Calvin College and others have been studying, you know, studying the sky and seeing these stars, I guess, on a path uh, towards <laughs> towards their own mutual destruction. Uh, and I think it's going to be pretty neat to be able to 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 look up in twenty twenty two or even twenty twenty three. They're not. I think the date's still a little fuzzy. And see this without a telescope that will be one of the brightest things in the night sky. Yeah, I love the idea that they think that this is something that they can predict because, again, star the life of a star, right? The, the, this is described in, in these the, the different life points, the different milestones in the life of a star are, are millions or billions of years that these things happen. And the fact that they're looking at this and think now here, it's not a case of like the lifetime of the star. It is the fact that there are these two stars and they are uh, moving around each other and uh, sharing a common atmosphere and are going to, they're, they're using the, you know, their physics calculations to think that they're going to merge basically and blow each other up. And uh, that would be really exciting. So I hope I hope they're right because it would be a fun thing to see and it would be also be really cool that they spotted it before it happened. Because a lot of times what happens, right, is that something, uh, there's, a, there's a, a nova or a supernova and then you go back through all the old photos that have been taken of that region of space and you try to backtrack to like, oh, what did it look like before? But in this case, they're looking at it now and saying that, it, that it's going to, in the next five years, it's going to do this. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I, th I think it is. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to being able to, to see this. You know, something you think about Nova's being something that, you know, like you said, you see pictures of, you see images of, but it's hard to think about them as, as like a a live event, right? Something that we can actually see unfold from our vantage point. And so I think that's going to be pretty special. 
Yeah, if it happens, I hope that, that. And then you know, the scientists are going to be like, "Called it." They're going to be. You're not going to be able to shut them up. Their friends are going to just never hear the end. Of it. <laughs> They're going to be exhausted. Can you imagine what the Plant Nine guys will be like if they ever find that thing? Oh yeah, you know exactly right. You know, I'm sure Mike Brown's got his uh, Planet Nine license plate already picked <laughs> out, right? I mean, I think I would, right? Like, just yeah, just go ahead and embrace it's it. True. It's true. Uh, we had a couple uh, emails and notes from listeners about the film Hidden Figures, which is uh, currently in theaters. It is uh, top of the box office in a bunch of places. And it is a film about the uh, some of the women, uh, in particular African-American women at NASA, who were, were working on the mathematical and engineering teams uh, during the, the early days of crewed space flight. And uh, I have not seen it. I don't think you've seen it yet. Either. I haven't seen it either. Um, I, don't, I, I don't go to the movie theater very often. It's hard to get unfortunately. out, uh, especially with kids. But uh, it has done well. It, I believe, was number one at the box office two weeks in a row, which is uh, which is spectacular. Awesome. And I think uh, what we're going to say is we will probably do an episode about Hidden Figures, but I think we're probably going to wait, even if we do end up seeing it in the movie theater, I think we're probably going to wait until it's available for people to watch at home and do it then, just because I think a lot of people have a hard time getting out to see the movie, uh, a movie in the theater, and so then you do an episode that people can't listen to because they uh, haven't seen it yet um and so i think I, I to answer everybody's question i think we will probably talk about hidden figures in a future episode but i'm thinking we we will wait until it's uh available for home viewing and do it then yeah i think so but check it out you should go see it if you're interested in space uh it's out in wide release now so you should go check it out yeah i'm with you it's tough to get out with little kids and and go see a film but uh i'm excited about it i'm excited that it's doing well something that on the surface of it you know may be a little unusual as far as uh, uh, I guess a mainstream appeal type film, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it's uh, it's finding success. Yeah, I, I think that uh, a movie that is not a blockbuster that's doing well at the box office that's about space, the space program in part at least, uh, is that's uh, that's good. That makes me happy. Um, I have a uh, I have a probably not aliens update for you. This is my it's my favorite category of update. <laughs> Well, um, this is this is very much and 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 thanks to listener Jason for sending this one in. Uh, probably not aliens. I think has been ratcheted up to almost certainly not aliens now. It was really close before, but uh, he sent in a story about this radio source that has been, as the news story says, confounding scientists for years. It's a strong radio burst, and and they're like, where is it coming from? And again, most scientists didn't think that it was a signal. A radio signal from an intelligent species, but there's still this question of like, there's a great history in astronomy of finding uh, bursts of radiation from space that are pretty powerful and thinking like, what the heck is this? Like a pulsar or something like that, for example. Um, and so what this new information has, uh, has determined is that these radio flashes are not coming from the Milky Way as they thought, but over 3 billion light years away in a far off galaxy. And that means that they are so powerful that first off, it's almost certainly not aliens. And uh, they've, but they've got some ideas, which is cool. Like a, a magnetar, which is a brand new neutron star with a crazy magnetic field that's inside a uh, supernova remnant or a uh, or a pulsar wind nebula. There are lots of 
esoteric uh, things that they think might cause uh, these radio bursts that are are uh, that we're able to receive um, three billion light years away. But what it's not probably is aliens. Probably. Probably, probably. I mean, I'm pretty. I'm I'm feeling pretty pretty confident. I'm good. That it's not. I, I think I'm I, I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, this past weekend, SpaceX had their return to flight mission uh, launched from your backyard in Vandenberg Air Force Base. <laughs> well, California's a big state. That's uh, it's down by Santa. It's down by Santa Barbara. It's pretty far from here. It's all the same. But uh, but still, it's my yeah. It's my it's West Coast, best coast. Woo. Mm. Um, mm. as I've said before on this show, one of the cool things about about this and you got to see it as they launched the uh as they launched the rocket that was carrying the the satellites um once they signed off from the first part and they just showed the 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 map uh you really get a sense for why they launch out of Vandenberg for polar orbits is um south from Santa Barbara it, there's nothing until Antarctica like you could watch the the tracking of it and it's just like yep more ocean more ocean more ocean oh there's Antarctica and then it we went back up the other side sort of like up above the Indian Ocean it was pretty cool to see that um and yeah the big news is SpaceX um got after their problem where their rocket exploded on the pad uh returned to flight they got all of the iridium satellites released in orbit that was a complete success and for most fun for the observer is they did their first landing on the west coast on a drone ship they landed the falcon 9 first stage on their drone ship and i think technically most impressive although it certainly isn't but still i'm gonna say that i was most impressed by the fact that they found a way to keep the video going during the landing not just not only did they have footage of the landing on the drone ship, they had live video and the frame rate dropped way down when they got close to the pad, but they had live video on the first stage all the way down to the pad, which was just amazing. So cool. we got to in <laughs> live, we got to watch a rocket take off, separate stages, take satellites to orbit and burn back to earth and land out in the Pacific ocean all, all live on video um, while we were watching on the internet. Pretty amazing. <laughs> it's uh, it's nuts. I mean, if you think even about, I guess I've been doing this about a year now or so, uh, having, you know, where the video would cut out and a couple of times we didn't, we wouldn't know for like half an hour or even longer if I right. think it survived. And uh, <laughs> it's impressive to me that any camera could survive this, let alone like be live streaming. I mean, uh, you and I both live stream audio as part of our jobs. Like that alone can be complicated enough. <laughs> But to, yeah. to strap, I guess, what is uh, a GoPro or something like it to the side of a, of a, of a, a rocket is... Pretty... Maybe more integrated than that. Maybe. But yeah, the it's fact not that... just to get a well, suction cup and just like stick it on the side. Totally, totally fine. It's all it takes. One of my favorite things about how space travel has improved is techno- and, and technology has improved is that it used to be um, you might see some really bad pictures uh, long after the fact and uh the space shuttle in the in the last 5 or 10 years of the space shuttle the same way and and some of it was for good reasons right it was for imaging to see if there were going to be strikes of uh, you know ice or foam from the from the external ta- tanks after after uh, columbia uh, but seeing live color pictures from the spaceship as it's going into space is a thing that we can do now and um 
and so the and SpaceX has done that too, and it's it's a uh, hugely entertaining for all of us. I'm sure it has other uses too, but it really it really is pretty great to be able to ride along on the rocket with uh you know with these launches and see it all live. It's great. And the it's also I think important to know how fast their turnaround was after that uh, that accident. I think it helped probably that it wasn't during launch or in flight that, yeah. that was refueling. And so that does limit, you know, the, the potential issues. And I remember in the coverage we had right afterwards, it took them a little while to kind of begin to pinpoint the issue, but clearly they, they resolved it in such a degree that they felt comfortable to fly and were able to have their license reinstated. Right. Cause the government has to say, yes, this vehicle yeah. can actually launch. And you know, it's, it's not like you just, just do it when you want, they have to issue you a license for the vehicle and that is taken away after an accident and then reinstated. So uh, hopefully the problems are behind them. You know, we talked about it. They've had, um, you know, several uh, incidents over the years and, they have a really busy schedule coming up, both in the their commercial business, but also commercial crew for NASA and building and flying the Falcon Heavy, which is still on the schedule for some point in the future. They have yeah. a lot going on, and they need to uh, hopefully uh, be have these issues, you know, be put behind them and can can get back to their get back to their business. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you. You've got all of that uh, ambition, and they were on pause, and I'm sure it drove them nuts. But they're uh, they're they're going again now, so that's great. It's good to see. Yep, uh, Jason, you want to tell us about our sponsor this week? Yeah, we have a new sponsor this week, and it's pretty exciting because it's a product that I I use and I've been using for more than a year now. So this episode of Liftoff brought to you by Blue Apron. You may have heard about them. Blue Apron is the company that uh, delivers uh, seasonal recipes in a box to your door along with high-quality, fresh ingredients so that you can make a delicious home-cooked meal for less than $10 per meal. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home-cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system. They use the highest standards for their ingredients. And they basically are building a community of home chefs. Every meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. But it's all from scratch. You are making a meal yourself. You can customize your recipes each week based on your dietary preferences and choose a delivery option that fits your needs. So, example, we pick a day that is the day that we, we need to get it. My wife doesn't eat pork. I hate a lot of vegetables. This is something that people know about me. And uh, and and we have multiple recipes to select from. So we can almost always find at least two things that we want to get. And we get two, me- two meals for four of us in our family. There's also a uh, meal plan for two people. So you can, you can choose. And if you don't like what you see for a given week on the Blue Apron website, you just say, skip me this week. And they don't charge you and they don't send you a box. So you don't get stuck with food that you don't want to make into a meal. You just skip that week. It's super easy and you only get recipes that you are excited to make. Uh, it, it knows that when uh, Blue Apron knows when you cook with fresh ingredients, it supports a more sustainable food system. You can make great meals. They've got the highest quality of suppliers. The meat is good. The vegetables are good. And you get to keep the recipes, right? And what I found is not only is Blue Apron changing the way we cook and that we've got a couple new things every week, almost every week that we're cooking, other than the weeks that we skip, but we're also saving those recipe cards 
and uh, putting like marks on them of like, oh, Jason liked this one and Julian actually didn't complain about eating this one because my son is picky. Uh, and uh, then we will remake those meals later, too. So it's really changed how our family has uh, has has uh, done its meal planning and what food we eat now, which is pretty great. So we were kind of stuck in a rut and now we're not. So among the recipes that you could get from Blue Apron, just a couple examples, mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. We had that last week. It was really good. We saved that recipe card for sure. Uh, burgers and red cabbage slaw with creamy sriracha sauce and roasted sweet potatoes. Mm. And creamy shrimp spaghetti with broccoli and Meyer lemon. Yeah, these are all the sorts of things that you can make yourself at home in less than an hour with the ingredients sent to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and you can get three meals for free with free shipping. That's right. They will, they will send you food for free. You just have to go to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You will love how good it feels and tastes to make home-cooked meals yourself from scratch by hand in less than an hour. Go to blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thank you, Blue Apron, for sponsoring Liftoff. So as we were preparing this week's episode, we got some news uh, yesterday that uh, one of the uh, Apollo astronauts, uh, Gene Cernan, who served on Apollo 10 and Apollo 17, uh, had passed away. Now, he holds the unique title of being uh, the so-called last man on the moon. Uh, Simply put, that he was the last astronaut to actually have his feet on the ground as part of Apollo 17. He was the second to return to the the lunar lander, and that's that's a name that has really uh, stuck with him. There's a 2014 documentary about his life called "The Last Man on the Moon," uh, which, if you haven't seen, is well worth uh, the watch. Uh, it's it's a little rough in places. I think um, I think Sarah and like a lot of you know a lot of astronauts had a lot of things they had to sacrifice for their work, including yeah. you know uh, a stable family life, and the the, the documentary goes into that. Um, but it, it, this this marks another passing of of a man who walked on the moon. There are now fewer than half of the moonwalkle moonwalkers uh, are still with us, and um, yeah, it was just it was it was a sad sad thing to see. I mean, the rest of them. I mean, the, these these guys are all they're all in they're all in their eighties. Yeah, all of the living moonwalkers are in their eighties now. So it's it's a. Uh, you know, there's. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. One of the things I've said before when we did our uh, our Apollo 13 episode for members, um, the thing that sticks with me. I think one of the beautiful things at the end of Apollo 13 is the last line is that uh, Tom Hanks, as Jim Lovell, looks up the moon and says, "I wonder who's going to go back there. Who will that be?" And we still don't know, like, will somebody go to the moon again? It is this great uh, kind of lost thing, like a thing, a, a thing we did and then and then we never went back. And um, now the the men who walked on the moon are all dying and we still, you know, we still don't know who will go back. And, and we're, we're confronting the fact that realistically, uh, they will all be gone before anybody sets foot on the moon again. And uh, that's uh, that's sad on a number of, of levels, not only about uh, sort of uh, where space exploration has gone in the last 40 years, but also uh, thinking of, of them and from their perspective, hoping to see what was next and, mm-hmm. and uh, not really getting to see somebody else on the moon or somebody going to Mars or anything like that. Right. 
Um, we should we should talk a little bit about about his career. So he was part of uh, Gemini Nine, who was the second American to walk in space, so to open the hatch and, and go outside. Uh, he flew uh, on Apollo Ten, like I mentioned, making him one of only two astronauts to travel to the moon twice. So a pretty rare club there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, was part of the last lunar mission, Apollo Seventeen, and those those last Apollo missions were really much more involved than you think about the early ones. So Apollo 17 had the record for the longest manned lunar landing flight, uh, the longest lunar surface extravehicular activities, uh, 22 hours. Um, They brought back 249 pounds of uh, sample material from the lunar surface. That's also a record. Uh, And the longest time in lunar orbit, 147 hours. So they were there the longest by a noticeable amount. And and like you said, that was it. You know, uh, Apollo 17 was it. There were a few planned past that, but that were cut uh, in preparation for the uh, things like the um, space station, you know, those early space stations and the space shuttle program. And and I think there was to a degree, and I think we spoke about this maybe on the Apollo 13 special, that there was a a lack of interest when it came to the moon that the public very quickly kind of got over it. And because of that, you know, the government and NASA were not as uh, gung ho about spending the money, right. That, that it was time for something else. And I think we can really speak, you know, that's a whole conversation about what the public thinks and how that, that shapes NASA. Um, but you know, here in the in the waning years of this of this program, a mission that really stood apart, you know, took place. And these were the guys who were were driving around the lunar rover. Which you've, if you've never seen seen it or seen pictures of it, uh, I got uh. to, I got to see a, I got to see one uh, last summer. And I mean, it looks like something you could build in your garage. Like it, there's just nothing huh. to it, and they're just zipping around the moon. Uh, and it has like be- fold out beach chairs as seats because they were lightweight. Um, some really remarkable stuff going on here at the very end of Apollo. I uh, will recommend, I mean, I recommend everybody who listens to this uh, this show to watch HBO's From the Earth to the Moon documentary, which I wish was on HBO Go, but I think it's not. I think you got to get the DVDs. Uh, but it was, Ron Howard and Tom Hanks produced it, so it was really a follow-on to Apollo 13. There are two episodes in there that I'd recommend if you're thinking about Gene Cernan. And one of them is Gene Cernan's uh, Apollo mission to his landing was with Harrison Schmidt, who is the only real scientist among the Apollo astronauts mm-hmm. in that he was a geologist. And they, they brought him in because they wanted, you know, one of the things you do on the moon is look at geology. And I, I've been fascinated by that. As I've said on this show, I don't understand geology at all. And I'm fascinated by how the astronauts had to get up to speed on it so that they would be able to understand what the rocks were, basically, that they were seeing on the on the surface. So there's an episode of that called Galileo is Right, which is that episode where uh, Harrison Schmidt convinces uh, them to train the astronauts on geology, and that's a pretty cool thing, and it pays off uh, in Apollo 15. And then, of course, the last episode of From the Earth to the Moon is is a uh, interesting. It's like a, a a mock documentary about Apollo 17, interleaved with the Melies uh, film of a voyage from the Earth to the Moon. That was like the first film ever made. Uh, and uh, that's a that's a fun one too. And I I'm gonna go back. I I realized I need to just go back and watch that whole series again because it's great. And um and I wish that it was available like in fancy HD and stuff on uh, 
on HBO, maybe someday. Yeah, so so lots of good uh, good stuff there, and yep. um, yeah, so I don't know. It was just it was just kind of a sad moment, and uh, you know something that um, uh, you know we're gonna have more of these, right? Unfortunately, uh, yeah. over the next you know the next couple of years, and uh, I don't know. It just it really kind of set me off in thinking, you know, like what you're talking about, like what what is next. Uh, NASA's yeah. in its during the Mars phase. Uh, we're going to talk about it next week, actually, but uh, some things that may be changing uh, under the new administration and what that looks like, and and or is the is Mars going to be put on hold and go back to the moon after all? Like, there's lots of these questions right now, and so all that was right. kind of on my mind. And you see, you see this news, so um, kind of a and, kind of a heavy thing. And it's entirely possible, and I think it's interesting to think about this, and, and, and at some point we will need to talk about this subject more too. Um, it's entirely possible that the next person to set foot on the moon will be uh, will be Chinese and will do it in the next maybe 10 or 15 years because China has talked about the, its interest in the moon and they aren't obviously very transparent in what all their space plans are, but it's not impossible that that might happen but uh you know it's it's unclear right now where where humanity as a whole is going uh or going back to next so we'll 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 find out yeah uh let's move to something a little happier uh if you were one of the people who had their mission picked uh we talked about how nasa a few a few episodes ago about how NASA was going to uh, pick from five finalists two missions to start preparation, uh, two planetary uh, missions, and it sounds like they, they the idea was they could pick one or two, and the advantage of picking two would be that they just get a head start on their on their next two. It wouldn't like be a bonus mission that instead of p- picking one and then waiting a few years and picking another, they would just pick two for the discovery program, which is uh, the programs at NASA. Emily Lakdawalla explained this to us uh, when she was on. It's a uh, it's a it's a specific price of a mission. It's like you know too expensive and they can't be a discovery mission. They they need to be budget budget planetary science missions and there were five that we talked about mm-hmm. in uh in october when they were selected late september um there was a uh, da vinci which is a uh, venus atmosphere investigation there was veritas which is a uh, venus uh spectro- spectroscopy mission basically there was uh neocam which was searching for near-earth objects 10 times more than had been discovered so we could see what was floating around near us um, none of those were chosen, <laughs> but two asteroid-related uh, missions were chosen. Yeah, so let's let's talk about these a little bit. Uh, the first uh, name is Lucy, and like before we go any further, like yeah, uh, I'm super psyched that we're not using crazy acronyms for these uh, these missions. Veritas. They just have names. Osiris da Vinci. Rex. Yeah. I should say Da Vinci again. Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging. Come on. That's, Come on. That's pushing it. That's a, that, that is a wicked backronym. Shame on you. Yeah. Lucy. Lucy is uh, Lucy. Yeah. Easy. That's what it easy is. Easy to remember. So uh, out of the two, it is scheduled to launch first in October of 2021. And it's going to have uh, a couple of different destinations. So the first one being a a main belt asteroid in 2025. And then after that, from 2027 to 2033, Lucy will explore six Jupiter Trojan asteroids. And I think we mentioned this in somewhere, the moon draft, or I don't know if we did a Jupiter episode yeah. or not. So at some point we talked about the Trojan asteroids. These are asteroids that are basically pulled 
into Jupiter's orbit, but they lead or trail the planet. So if you think about right. like Lagrange points, um, these are asteroids that that are before or behind the planet as it travels around the sun. And and why they're interesting and why they've been picked for this mission is that they are thought to have been pulled in from the outer reaches of the solar system. So that disk of debris and dust that was left after the planets were formed and as, as they were forming, these asteroids could be that material. So they could be very old, much older than anything else that's easy to get to. And so these asteroids could be like, you know, like little time machines, little mm-hmm. uh, pictures back into the, the beginning of the solar system. And... Um, I think what's what's also interesting here is that Lucy very much is sort of uh, the child of the New Horizons program. Uh, there's some mission team members that are veterans of that program, uh, and the spacecraft is going to be using updated versions of a couple of the the science instruments found on New Horizons. So both Ralph and the Lori cameras from New Horizons will be on Lucy. So uh, some similar types of science going on, and uh, and I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be fun to learn more about hopefully about the you know the very early days of the, of the solar system right and lucy to be clear the the what they say they they named it lucy because they view those asteroids as like fossil record of the solar system and the outer solar system and so they named it after the early hominid fossil or not fossil but early early fomin, early hominid found in africa that is named lucy that's the idea so it it is not a crazy backronym i hope they don't make them turn it into a a backronym at some point yeah like you know <laughs> if it's levitating ulcers hmm. carefully yearning wow no that's not good that's good i hope someone got that for a title suggestion uh yeah if, yeah. if it shows up in all capital letters all of a sudden we know that they've they backronymed it um yeah shame on them so that's the first one uh tell me about the second one Psyche. So Psyche is, uh, the plan there is to launch that in October of 2023, and it is a mission to the asteroid Psyche. So uh, they're probably going to give this a new name, I would imagine, at some point, right, too, or the name of the spacecraft. They may name both these spacecraft with ridiculous things, because you can't say Psyche has reached Psyche, right? That's not going to... That's not going to happen. <laughs> but it's it's uh, it's uh, three times further away uh, from the sun than the Earth is, so it's out there, out there, and uh, way out there. And it's about 130 miles in diameter. And what's interesting about uh, Psyche is that most asteroids are rocky or icy. Psyche is considered to be probably mostly metallic. It is a metal asteroid. It is, if you'd like to think about it this way, a 130 mile wide chunk of iron and nickel. It is a big metallic blob. And that's really interesting because there's that question of like, where did it come from? Is it, uh, was it a planetary core of a planet that got destroyed? Is it something that's left over from the formation of the solar system? Um, why would something so large and heavy not have accumulated uh, friend, you know, m- matter of its own to make a little mini uh, planet of some other, uh, other sort? We, you know, let's find out. Let's find out by sending Psyche to Psyche. So uh, its unique composition makes this asteroid worth um, worth investigating. Yeah, it's uh, in reading about it, this thing seems like such an unusual object. Um, and the idea yeah. that, that it, it, it could be very similar to looking at like Earth's core, like our own core. Um, right. So yeah, so it could be interesting as far as planet formation, 
uh, early histories, you know, all, all sorts of interesting things that come out of it. Um, I agree with you. I think the naming is problematic, and I'm sure that the, the spacecraft will have a name at some point. But... Right. I mean, these are mission names, right? So presumably they will then create a name for the spacecraft that's different, right. and maybe it'll be Cupid. And they'll be like, ha, ah, see what we did yeah. there. I, I'm going to um, write in Snellovision. I think that would be a really okay. great spacecraft. Name. Sure. I'll, people, I'll people... email NASA people would love that um i'll come up with a backronym for it too that's terrible but i'll do that later <laughs> the uh what you know when you're a kid you kind of i don't know my conception of the solar system was very much like less messy than it actually is and once you realize the how solar system formation works uh you start to you start to realize and the lucy naming also goes to this point right which is the junk that's in the solar system floating around is not like the new junk made by the solar system. The other way to look at it is this is all of the evidence of how the solar system came to be. This is the stuff left over from the formation. And when you start to think of it that way as evidence of of what came before, you realize how important it is to investigate this stuff because this uh, you know, Earth has been through a lot, right? All, all of the surface of the Earth has been paved and repaved by volcanic acti- activity over the years. And of course, we have had erosion and all sorts of other things and glaciation and everything that's happened here. Um, and the moon, you know, we've been to the moon, but you know, we know we have a pretty good idea of how the moon came to form, too, and it involves an impact with the Earth and all of that. But the, the, the garbage that's just floating around the outer solar system, that stuff is different because it's potentially from the beginning or from very early in the life of the solar system. It is evidence that we can't collect here. And that that's what makes these, these kinds of missions exciting. And I guess this is why NASA is definitely thinking that uh, asteroids are of interest. You know, they've also talked about an asteroid, uh, a crewed asteroid mission, um, uh, so I can't decide whether this these planetary uh, decisions are because NASA has asteroids on the brain or whether they really prefer them to Venus. But it's definitely a selection here of investigating the history of the solar system by investigating asteroids instead of sort of turning inward and learning more details about how Venus works. And that's the choice that they made for these two missions. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a world with... So much budget and so much time. I understand yeah, why they have you to gotta choose. Yeah, why you have to choose. Um, I was a little surprised that, that two uh, asteroid missions were chosen. I thought they would maybe go a little bit broader in, I guess, in topic area, if you will. But, um, uh, you know, they don't ask me. No, they don't. And, you know, obviously they look very carefully at all five of these things. Right. So. And of course, it's a lot more yeah. than just about topic area. There's there's lots of feasibility issues, budgetary issues. Um, I think sure. that Lucy could reuse some of the New Horizon uh, technology. It's probably a big win in its category, right? That 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 NASA and its partners like to to use instruments that have been proven. And yeah. I, I would imagine that 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 was a big help towards uh, towards that particular mission. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that about does it. I think that's about it uh, for this episode. If you want to find links uh, for the topics and stories we discussed, you can do that on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 38. You can get in touch with us there via email, or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell, and you can find me there at ismh. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.